Tell me about this political studies thing. I'll go way back. I'll start way back. <laughs> I started school in computer science, like a couple. Yeah, I know, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't think so, but I did. Um, like four years ago, like a long. I was like eighteen. Um, I didn't take to it. It's a weird program where, like, uh, you'd think computer science, everything would be done on a computer, right? And for the most part, it is. But your exams are like handwritten which was really tough for me to get down. I know. No, I know. Exactly. So I could, I just, I, I dropped out and then the pandemic happened. And so of course I didn't go back during that. I intended on going back after a year of like just a gap year. Uh, Cause I didn't take one, but then, um, you know, I don't want to go to remote classes full time. You know what I mean? So I didn't. Um, and then over the course of the pandemic, I like, I started to get into like political theory a little bit. I started reading Marx, you know what I mean? Which was interesting because um, while you're reading him, you don't really understand the stigma against communism. Because obviously, right, you see the real life examples and you go, it's kind of a rough system, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but then you read it and you're like, that sounds normal as hell, you know what I mean? That sounds good. And so I thought I'd go to university to figure it out. You know what I mean? Because like I can read it on my own and like that's fine. You know what I mean? But I feel like um, I needed to like dig a little deeper. And the one of the most interesting parts actually um, was I took a history class. I took the history of the Soviet Union, which was awesome. Yeah, it was really, really cool. Because um, that's like that's like the prime example, right? Of like the the so the socialist experiment. And my professor, who was either from Ukraine or Russia, I think from the USSR, I don't actually remember. She thought it was so interesting to have grown up there and then come here and and hear people like kind of take a liking to Marx. She was like, "How could you guys do that? I lived that. It. it was terrible." Oh, so this Marx person. Carl, you're familiar with Carl? Not Carl at all. Marx. Not at all. No, he's the communist guy. <laughs> him and him and Engels. Okay, we can we can talk a lot about that in a bit. Yeah. So he writes like the Communist Manifesto. Somebody commissions this paper for him to write, and so Engels funds it. He writes it. It's like workers of the world unite. You have only your chains to lose, or something like that. He's like fight back against the man. You know what I mean? And so they try that in Russia, and we know how that goes. It doesn't end very well. I think 1990-something it ends. Uh, she thought it was crazy having grown up there. Not not really throughout like the prime of the socialist experiment, but kind of in the aftermath where things were kind of falling apart in the, in the latter half of the Cold War. So what actually happened up to 1990? Russia was kind of like, a, like an oligarchy, right? You had a bunch of rich people running the place, uh, and workers didn't really take to that. So in like 19... Mm, I'm going to get this wrong, but that's okay. Yeah. Like 1918. Or roughly 19, around there. Or roughly around there, like like 1915 and on, somewhere in there. Lenin, um, what's it, Vladimir, Vladimir Lenin, like starts this revolution, you know what I mean? Like a workers' revolution off of reading Marx. And they have this like, I don't think it's a very long war, but they have this little revolution against what they call the bourgeoisie, which are the owners of the land. And they overthrow them. And they try to start a socialist state. Unfortunately, I guess I should mention uh, Lenin's got a couple teammates. You know, he's got he's got some he's got some boys, and one of them is Stalin, and he's important for later. Surely you've heard of Stalin. Yeah, I've heard yeah, of, of course. But not right. I, I've only heard the name. Right. 
the man of iron, the man of steel or something. That's what that literally means. It's not his actual name, but anyway, um, they're like buddies and they have like this, this like partnership into creating the socialist state. Lenin dies very quickly after the war ends. <laughs> so his idea doesn't actually get realized, you know? And then I think there's some weird like political stuff that goes on where Stalin kind of like fights his way to the top through all the other like socialist idealists, you know what I mean? And he's a really bad guy for the most part. You know what I mean? I don't know too much about Stalin actually, right? Especially like given my professor's experience with kind of the aftermath of the of 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 that of that kind of history. Um the the course kind of took like a definitely impartial, right? You were allowed to have your own thought on on things. But it was like like Stalin's leadership, I think 1930 and on for like 50 years was pretty bad. It was pretty rough. Right, because he took a more like violent approach to like instilling like a like a like a communist kind of thing Just to keep order. It was yeah. to violence. It, yeah, it was it was it was a little bit um, unkind. I'll it was say. coercion, not consent. Y- yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. Sure, I'll agree with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, like, if you were out of line, gulag, work camp, you know what I mean. Which is kind of like, and so and so. The interesting thing to me reading Marx, taking political theory and seeing all this stuff is that when Lenin dies and even kind of when Lenin, like Leninism is like a whole different sect of, of socialism and Marxism or whatever. Um, from what I know and what I understand from school is that that vision dies with Lenin and then just continues to get further perverted from what Marx is actually talking about. So what was Lenin's dream? A worker owned state. That's kind of the goal of communism is that the workers kind of run everything it's like a collective ownership of of all things like a democratized workplace especially for factories so this is another little issue specifically with russian communism and the russian socialist experiment not so much communism as a whole or whatever marx was talking about because when marx is writing he's looking at the industrial revolution and he's looking at all the factories there and actually, in the Communist Manifesto, that's like a political advertisement. It's like to fire up workers for the goal, right, for, for, for an agenda. So it's really for the Communist Party. But Das Kapital, which is like his magnum opus, I think, which is what you know people regard as like his text, it's like very scientific because he looks at the wages and he looks at the schedules and, and, and how all these factories in Europe and particularly Germany where he's writing a run and he's going, something's got to give, bro. This is really bad how we're running this stuff. You have these guys on top who do almost no work, who get all of the money. And then you have people working like 20-hour shit. You know what I mean? Like really, I don't know what the exact math is, but he, he, he examines how factories run in capitalist Europe. And he says, this can no longer stand. People are getting ripped off every day. You know what I mean? There's a severe imbalance. Yeah, severe imbalance. And we're even seeing that a little bit today, but in a different way. Um, but anyway, that's kind of the goal, right? And then and then Lenin kind of takes that to Russia. But unfortunately, Russia is still very agrarian when they start doing this. There's no factories, really. Like, there's people who own the land, people who work for those people. There are workers. but But the technology isn't quite there. Marx thought that capitalism was a necessary step in the historical progression to like a socialist worker state because you need the technology right you need that kind of kind of what we have today right there's a great um sorry i'm kind of all over the place but the, the dots will connect eventually yeah they will <laughs> um there's a great interview by this guy named richard wolf he's a 
American economist that teaches at Harvard. He he goes through this whole thing about how when like technology started to boom in the late 1990s and into the 20th or the 21st century, right? Kind of what we've seen over my lifetime, right? I was born pretty much when the internet started and now look at us, you know what I mean? So during that time, what could have happened is that the streamlining that kind of brought to the workforce, right? Things got easier, you know? Your computer does a lot of stuff for you. So it was you were able to generate the same amount of revenue for much less work. And so what could have happened, so says Richard Wolf, is that we could have let workers off four hours early and you could have made it a four-hour workday and you would have generated the same revenue for less work or you could have paid workers more. But what instead happened is workers work the same amount, they get paid nearly the same amount, right? Minimum wage is barely increased and the guy on top gets a lot more money. So, what's this called? What's this system called? No, that's capitalism. Okay. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Can we cu- cuss on this? Yeah. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> exactly. And I'm kind of like being a worker, right? You feel that every day. I guess back to Russia, really, the goal of communism is to seize the means of production. Have you heard of that? No. It's so, yeah, so the bourgeoisie, the CEOs, the billionaires, whatever, they own the means of production. They own the land. They own the tools. They own the resources. They own the workers, essentially. The goal is to relinquish that ownership and kind of equally distribute it amongst all parties involved. So the workers own stakes in the company. The workers own their lives, you know, they control their wages to some extent. Everybody's kind of collectively involved in the... They're all collaborating. Exactly. But in Russia, they didn't really have anything to relinquish because there wasn't that, like, factory model yet. It was very agrarian, very farmer-based. And so, you you know, you could do it a little bit. But I think that was a huge roadblock in turning over power because... They kind of ended up not being that much to kind of, you know. There wasn't much to turn turn over. over. Yeah. So I guess like, yeah, I want to say that the war started earlier. Like I I almost want to say they revolt 1912. This, yeah, this sounds more accurate. They like Lenin, those guys, the proletariat, the workers, they revolt 1911, 1912, 1914, Lenin dies, 1918, Stalin is now the guy. And then he's the guy for a while. I'm pretty sure. But I still feel inaccurate. Yeah, <laughs> Whatever. But, but it's it happens kind of in that order. Kind of in that... Well, exactly in that order. I just don't know what Do, dates. The but dates who, don't matter. It doesn't really matter, yeah. you know? I'm not writing the test. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what, what I've heard said about Russia in the past is that they also didn't really have a democracy leading into the communist revolution. When that kind of fell apart what they went back to was their oligarchy, right? Because that's all they knew. They didn't have a history of democracy to fall back on. They didn't have a history of capitalist whatever to fall back on. What they had was essentially a monarchy, was just some rich guys, almost king, like the czar, right? Which was, it's not a king, but it's like the high ruler, right? And so that's that's what and what Stalin ended up kind of being. There's like some parallels to draw there because he was like the, like, I guess, I guess you can call him a dictator. I think that's acceptable. People call him a dictator. So he would just like, he controlled everything, he ruled all. It just he completely threw out the socialist idea, right? Like, like he was trying to implement things in the right direction, but he was still at the, at the head, right? And people started to take issue with that, obviously, because they were a part of it, right? They were like, where's our socialist state, Stalin? Like, where, where's the dream? And he kept lying and lying, and it never really got there. And that just kind of breeds a lot of paranoia in the state, especially in Stalin. So he starts executing political enemies. Enemies. Right? Like, like it, it gets really, really bad. You know what I mean? People who are who are in government trying to go, this is not it. You know what I mean? This is not what we set out to do. They would get executed a lot of the time. <laughs> and then Stalin dies, somebody else takes over, and they try to rekindle that flame, but it doesn't really work out. 
And then Gorbachev in 1990, he declares the end of the so- of the Soviet Union. They dispel kind of the union they had with the surrounding states, Ukraine involved, included, and everything. No more. Now it's just Russia. You know what I mean? Not the USSR anymore. So then this Lenin guy, he mm-hmm. had a dream where all workers own something equal. Yeah, well, if you were, it's like, so let's say you work for McDonald's, for example, and McDonald's is much smaller, right? Like, let's say it's just one McDonald's in your town. Instead of the guy who started McDonald's and like took that risk, instead of that guy making like 80% of the profit and then that kind of trickles down to the workers, right? It's equally distributed. And not only the wages are equally, they're like the revenue is equally distributed amongst everybody for an equal wage, um, equal power. You know what I mean? So it's not to say that the CEO kind of gets these legislative like abilities. Yeah, because right? he owns the place. Yeah, yeah it's kind he of to gets say to make that, the final call. Exactly. I gotcha. It's well, that's the capitalist model. The communist model is more to say everybody's at the table, everybody has a say because this place doesn't run without me. You know, the, the McDonald's can have a CEO who's making all the decisions, but there's no decision to make without the fry cook. You know what I mean? You need everybody at the table, which which these are the parts of Marx when I was reading in the pandemic and when I'm and now that I'm taking these classes. So I guess that all started with me kind of my first experience with going to university in Marx was hearing my professor from the USSR or at least the aftermath of the USSR going, what are we doing? Why are we why do we like this guy? Like it was a joke. It didn't work at all. But. They didn't really get it. They didn't really fully realize the Marxist idea. And nobody really has yet. You know what I mean? There have been attempts. And some attempts have been very successful. But what often ends up happening on like kind of a global scale now after the Cold War is capitalists will intervene. You know what I mean? Which is too bad. Um, so, hold on. Well, Cuba's a great example of that. Cuba? You know what I mean? Cuba had a socialist revolution. Uh, Castro, yeah, Fidel, yeah, they took over. You know what I mean? They had a socialist revolution, and they were killing it, man. They were doing really, really good for themselves. The literacy rate went from like eleven percent up to like eighty. You know what I mean? Like that, because the capitalists weren't like taking all the money and not funding the schools. When Castro took over, he was like, "No, we're going right into education. Everybody makes the same. Everybody gets the same. We're leveling the playing field." Right? This is also where you get like the the everybody's poor stereotype of communist countries, because that's kind of how it was perceived because you had America who was doing fucking incredible. You know what I mean? They come off the heels of World War II and they're just soaring. They make so much money, they can't stop. You know what I mean? So everybody's like living the best life they can. And they look at Cuba and, and communism and they're going, why would I wait in line for bread? You know what I mean? Are you kidding me? You guys are so poor down there. But what they're not seeing is, is that America kind of started... At like level eight and went up to level 10. Cuba started at like level two and went up to level six. But then because of how like rapidly Cuba's growing and whatever, they put trade embargoes on Cuba, the states I mean. And so like they, they got like completely shocked by like the lack of import and export and whatever. You know what I mean? They were the, like the states was like world, uh-uh, break ties with Cuba. We can't let communism spread. You know what I mean? It was the same thing in Vietnam. It was the same reason that the, the Americans went to Vietnam. It was to stop the spread of communism. Because they saw a bad example in Russia. Well, yeah, for so, I don't, I don't really know why the Americans headed out for. Com- well, I mean, I guess it is kind of obvious. They're like they're the prime capitalist country. If you want to know about capitalism, you just look at the states because that's what they are and that's what they do, you know. So I guess they saw all these like kind of workers uprisings. They were like, Mm-mm, we can't let that happen here. We can't. So we have to scapegoat it. And so everybody who was communist was kind of like an enemy. Communism 
if done correct, will work? I don't fucking know. I want it to. <laughs> a little. I don't know. I don't know. So what did you learn in this then? Theoretically, communism sounds really, really, really nice, right? But I think it often gets touted as very idealistic, right? Um, but I don't know. But I literally don't know. I think you you cut your losses. And so to me, I'm just I'm really just going off of what I hear other workers say because that's kind of the goal, right? Is is how do you ensure everyone kind of lives lives a full life, lives a good happy life? So in Das Kapital, Marx talks about how wages only exist to pay the worker enough to rejuvenate themselves for a subsequent day of work. You know what I mean? You're not paid to live. You're not paid to enjoy. You're not paid to flourish. You're paid to come back to work tomorrow. So they pay you enough to eat, enough to sleep, and that's really it. You know what I mean? And that's kind of the canon until unions happen and they go, uh-uh, we got to take care of our workers. But for the most part, you don't. You, you get shit all. You know what I mean? Because the goal is to maximize profit. And how do you do that? You rip your workers off by, by paying them only enough to come back and do it again. And so that's no way to live your life. And it's kind of unfair when you consider like generate. So, so again, considering the states, if you consider generational wealth, a country that started on slavery, you know what I mean? There are people who owned slaves who are now the descendant of those slave owners who probably are very wealthy families. They got there very unfairly, but they're, but they win at the system every day because they started with a million dollars. You know what I mean? Whereas a lot of people, you know, b predominantly people of color didn't get that same opportunity in the States and they, and they, and it, it would be impossible, right? To kind of give them that. Well, not, maybe not nowadays, right? We talk about reparations and that's kind of a way to, to, to level that playing field. But, but if we didn't do that, it would be impossible to kind of catch up. They have a 400 year lead where, where people were legally unallowed to own property and other people were legally allowed to own other people's property, right? So they had a um, big head start, a big, big head start. And so I think that for me, the use of communism, or at least the use of that ideology, is to look at that and go, historically, people who own things didn't own things because they worked hard for it. They got it because they cheated to some extent. And you can see that almost everywhere in the globe. Colonialism is another good example of that. Europeans kind of just went and took from indigenous people. They just kind of came here and were like, this land is ours now. Because XYZ, racist reason, racist reason. You know what I mean? And so I think when you do that, you do slavery and, colon and colonization, and then you form a society that's structured on working for your way out, you are barring people from a good life, right? Some people just will never have that. So the value to me is giving people that opportunity by leveling the playing field, at least in the workplace, giving people the opportunity to get that leg up and live a full life, right? And and kind of get beyond the point where you're paid to just come back to work the next day. We're not born to work. Careers didn't exist until the 1900s. You know what I mean? Not really. You, ne you never like started a job to work for 30 years and then collect a pension. You worked for a wage, but you, but it wasn't like that's my life. Or you, know you I mean? work just for food. Yeah, but then you own like, your means of production, right? You do. Yeah. You can't do that anymore. So I think that's another value is you kind of allow people more control over their lives. You're kind of forced to work, which isn't necessarily a problem. Actually, this is what's interesting to me also about Marx is he says that we like to work. We are a laborious animal since we started organizing and even probably before then right apes made fire they like to invest their time into doing stuff you kind of lose that control in a capitalist society because it becomes through through what he calls the division of labor which i think is most 
um, simply kind of exemplified in the uh, assembly line. You kind of had so for Marx, he's 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 taking a look at history, and he's seeing like artisans in guilds, right? So you had like the chair maker. And he was a chin. Oh my God, he could make a chair, right? And that's all he did. But he like his love, or I, I don't know, their love, their everything went into making this chair, and it was beautiful. And people bought the chair. They were like, Oh my God, this is a this is a fine creation. Nowadays, you screw one screw into one hole on a chair, and then it gets pushed on for the next guy to do the same thing in a different hole. And you and so your creative process, your love, your passion as a worker is gone on the assembly line in that division of work. You're not invested in that anymore. You're just putting one screw in. You're not seeing it from start to finish. Exactly. So you, you don't you don't love your work anymore, which is what humans love to do. It, to be human is is you love it, right? And we all do, right? This is work, but we love doing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because well, it's, that's the it's, reason people pay for gym memberships. Yeah. Or they still exercise. Exactly. They enjoy work. You got to love to do it, right? And to some extent, I love lifeguarding, right? It's awesome. Um I love making people's day bright you know what i mean i, I welcome them we I, I keep them safe to an extent they largely do that themselves but i'm there if they can't you know what i mean it's awesome but i i just don't have that much control over kind of what like where i take that yeah, I, you don't own the pool i don't you're yeah. not gonna make your own no right i have a buddy my sister's boyfriend um he loves cars he loves to work on cars he's working on his own car right now he's got a nissan Silvia he's building it's beautiful, right? But he always says he'd hate to be a mechanic because when it becomes a job, you lose the love for it, right? And so he's not talking about Marx, but that's the worker's experience. Everybody knows that when you make it a job, when you do it for money, it takes the love out of it. And why is that? Because you lose your control. You're working for somebody else and you're losing money doing it too, right? Because you have to lose money for big man on top to make some. You know what I mean? So yeah, um, even do I think communism will work? I don't know, but I think at least it might be a stepping stone towards a world where people are like actually equal, right? Yeah, instead of making that 2% and somebody else making the 98. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you look at the pandemic, right? Like workers were laid off, workers died a lot. Like, and I'm talking like it, it happened globally, right? Especially in like what they call majority countries, which is like, um, how most of the world is. So I guess you used to call them first world and third world. Now that's kind of like, it's 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 derogatory, right? Because it assumes that they're below, right? The first world countries. So we use majority world and minority world. And what's always interesting to me about that is because of the sociological background I have from school, majority kind of always refers to most power. So I always confuse the two, but majority is what we used to call the third world. So you could see that especially, yeah, I know, it's kind of confusing. So Just because of, because of there, there's a way that the world works and how the world works for everybody, and that's the third world. That's that's pretty much how a lot of places exist. And minority is where we like we in Canada and the states and Europe and everything are minority countries because we're lucky. Oh, because we're exist a small. The way that we do. We're a small piece that lives exactly. a certain way. It's not very representative of how the world actually, actually is, is for most people. Yeah. So anyway, predominantly in the states, you saw that kind of inequality happen, right? And and again, in most majority world countries too, but for the States, workers were laid off, people died, like a, like a 1.6 million people died because of COVID, you know what I mean? Like a lot of people, right? And especially in the States because healthcare is so expensive, like that's just, that's what happened, right? So the richer people, that didn't happen to them as much. But corporations made record profits. So this is So this is another interesting thing. Corporations made record profits. They brought in more money than ever. Minimum wage is not going up. Workers were laid off and dying, right? And still, for some reason, prices are inflating. 
Like, like that doesn't make any sense. Why would prices be going up? You guys are making enough money already. You're making more money than you've ever made. You're not paying your workers. Your workers are dying. You're laying off more workers, but the prices go up. Why? <laughs> what piece of that puzzle are we missing? Profit. The, the, the interest of a capitalist nation is to maximize profit at all cost. Oh, there's a presidential candidate. Marianne Williamson? I don't know. But she, there's a presidential candidate who, yeah. what she's saying. Uh, capitalism is an amoral system. And, and that's the huge problem, is that it doesn't. it's not good or bad on purpose. It says that we just do these things because that's business, right? So it, so it kind of detaches, even though it's evil beyond belief. To watch workers die, lay off more workers, and not pay them anymore while you're making billions. Even though that is, to me, evil, capitalism goes, that's just business. That's not, there's there's no morality there. We're an amoral system, and we do that on purpose. So that's the way you can shield yourself from that emotion. Mm-hmm. Is It's just you, business. Yeah. And yeah. you are in that system. I'm playing this game. Yeah, exactly. And there has to be somebody winning, and there mm-hmm. has to be somebody who's losing. Yeah, and you're losing because kind of part of capitalism is meritocracy. So you get to where you are because you work for it, which we all know is a lie, but that's the idea. How's it a lie? Well, I mean, look at Jeff Bezos. You think he worked for, for the position he's in? He did do work, but did he work 340,000 times more than the average worker? I don't think so. I don't think that's possible. Same thing with a lot of those companies. A lot of the biggest companies today, that's kind of how they started. They either started with a big capital investment from somebody who already had a lot of money or um it's kind of generational wealth where it where it accrues from things that are very unfair like slavery and colonialism you know what i mean like heads up where that we just like we're racist <laughs> you know what i mean so the majority of the companies all had a leg up to start yeah yeah you kind of need a leg up you know what I mean? You, you, I mean, they, they say it takes money to make money, and that's absolutely true. You have to have assets first before you can take out a big loan to start something. And so if you have nothing, right, if you're poor, then you're just, you're hooped, right? But if your dad can give you a quarter of a million, you can go to the bank and go, hey, more, and then now you can you can kind of explode. You know what I mean? If you make the right choices and leverage it properly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what I mean. I'm not saying he didn't do any work, Jeff Bezos. Obviously, yeah. He worked, right? I don't think he worked so much harder than everybody else. If you took out Jeff Bezos' net worth in singles, in dollar bills, and stacked them high, you'd reach the moon. Think about how much money that is. You know what I mean? Come in looking at that. Yeah, a billion's quite larger than a million. Yeah, and then 300 of those. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just like, damn. You know what I mean? I don't, I'm not saying he doesn't deserve it. I'm saying everybody else deserves a little bit of that because he doesn't get that without everybody. So that's that's also the biggest thing for me is that he gets an unfair loan. Not an unfair loan, but he gets a loan right, that he doesn't work for to start a company. And he starts the company and then he starts working at, at building this like hegemon. And then he employs workers. And he doesn't get to $300 billion without stealing from those workers, without getting them to come work for him and going, I'm not paying you to live. I'm not paying you to do all these things. I'm paying you to come back for tomorrow. So I'm following minimum wage. And I'm going to drain you guys. And he's not doing it on purpose. He's just playing the game. It's just business, right? It's just business. But then they don't get bathroom breaks. And they don't get time off. And they don't get benefits. And they don't get anything. All they get is like $9 an hour. You know what I mean? So they're doing all the work really, to grow Amazon. Amazon can't grow without people to pack boxes. And then Jeff Bezos is making $300 billion. You know what I mean? So that, to me, again, is just like that. That 
there's a large disparity. That's crazy. You know, that's unbelievable to me. Yeah. You know, it it's different to talk about business. And then when you think about business, it's unfair. Mm-hmm. However, in sports, you want an unfair advantage. Sports, yes. Spo- obviously, in sports, yeah. you want that kind of... You, you, sports have to be unfair because you can't win without there being somebody better than the other person, right? But sports are for fun. You yeah. know what I mean? We yeah. do sports for... So it's okay to lose, but it's not okay to lose in life. You know what I mean? You want every, I, capitalists, want some people to lose. People have to lose in a capitalist society for it to work. I don't necessarily know if I want that. You shouldn't be born with the risk of losing. You should be born with the, you get to live. Yeah. You know, such a contrast from what we're used to is games. And then they relate business to a game. And Mm. in any game, you want the most unfair advantage possible. True. Similar to chess, where once you make that wrong move, Mm -hmm. well, whoever's playing chess against you is going to capitalize on that. Mm -hmm. And that advantage just continues to grow exponentially. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and even the time put in before the game happens. You know, I might be more practiced than you. And so that's an, that you could see as an unfair... Not an unfair... Well, it's unfair. It's not equal. You know, but that's how the game works. That's what you got to do. I just don't think that's fair when you talk about... You know, people are dying, right? Yeah, you don't when, die when you talk about When you talk about humans... <laughs> yeah. And you don't divorce yourself from humanity, mm-hmm. then, yeah, it is definitely unfair. Mm-hmm. But if you base it just on that system, mm-hmm. then you can divorce yourself from all that emotion and say, mm-hmm. hey, it's just business. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just we're just playing the game. Economics, to me, is just a big old game we're playing. I don't well, really remember. We put ourselves in this box mm-hmm. that capitalism works mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we're measuring it by one measurement. It, well, exactly. Just money. Right? Yeah. Well, well and, and, and you know what? That's actually a great point because you look at the states and their GDP is crazy. They make so much money, right? And obviously they would because all the companies come from the states. And they put all their factories in places where the labor laws suck. So you can pay people two American cents an hour. So they generate a lot of money. But if you go to the states, people are poor, man. Nobody has any money because the poverty line is so high and the wealth is so unequally distributed. What, Like, what is it? The 1% own 90% of the money? But it's something unfathomable. That seems impossible, doesn't it? Oh, it's totally possible. Yeah, well, it's yeah. happening. But it yeah. seems like how did it happen? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And if you think about the highest GDP in the world, mm-hmm. and then you look at the list of the happiest places in the world. That's true. They're actually not directly correlated. Not at all. Yeah. Well, and obviously, because because GDP doesn't mean quality of life at all. Yeah, it's one measurement. No. So then what are you guys focused on in the political studies? Uh, we've kind of really just been looking at like how things happened the way that they've happened. So we can we can look at how things are happening today through like the, the historical lens. We get it. We get why things are kind of organized in the way that they're organized and why property is so important. So what are some common themes there? Liberalism is a big one because we... So it's tough in Canada to talk about political liberalism when you have a con, uh, like a political party called the liberals. The liberals are liberals, but like so are the conservatives. As far as political theory goes, Canada and most of the world is like... A, we're, we're, we're pretty liberal. I guess it really boils down to is like the free market, being able to buy and sell and work and whatever as you please equality for all right and that doesn't necessarily mean being treated nicely but treating the same capitalism is liberalist uh, as long as we let everybody do the same doesn't matter their background as long as we let everybody have the same rights 
then we're golden. So with liberalism, yeah, what are the biggest detriments to it? There's a way that everybody looks at the world, and that's kind of like your worldview. A liberal thinks that like everybody is equally rational all the time. You as an adult, right? Children are kind of exempt from this, and that's another problem. But you as an adult have the ability to use your reason and rational ability to come to reasonable, rational decisions. I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, assuming that leads people into a lot of negative places. So actually, this is a great example for me. We have a liberal kind of democracy in Canada, meaning like anybody can kind of run and get voted in if they get enough votes. It's a little different now because you need a lot of money to kind of campaign and get any uh, clout, I guess, you know, to get votes. You need some money. So it was clout influence? Yeah, okay. exactly. You, you need some reach, right? You need people to hear you, and you need money to get people to hear you, right? Ads, shirts, whatever. So it's a little bit skewed, um, but that's different, right? Ideally, anybody can run, anybody can get elected, but right now, because of liberalism and the idea that everybody's kind of rational, we have this idea that like like every voice should be heard. Bear with me, because I don't mean... Free speech is wrong and bad. But what I mean is every single person on the planet Earth that knows anything about the climate goes, humans have had an accelerated effect on the heating of the planet. Because of our carbon emissions at all, the planet is warming. We know that scientifically. But that doesn't matter because we have rational debate, you know, or at least we think we do. We welcome that. And so some guy in a suit with a blue tie gets to go, I disagree, scientists. And some guy in a suit with a red tie gets to go, hold on, let's hear him out. Let's have this political debate. That is flawed to me. How, how can the scientists go, hey, the climate's warming. We're having an effect on that. We should do something about it because otherwise the planet's going to burn. And someone goes, uh-uh, I don't agree. And, they, and we listen to them, and we have to, and he runs the country. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he makes all the decisions. Or not all the decisions, but like that, that's, that, that's kind of the house where the, the decisions are made. And so if that voice is there and that voice is being listened to, then we kind of have the situation we're in right now where we don't really do much all. We're in a lucky situation in Canada, obviously, because we have the guy with the red tie at the front right now and luckily he is of the interest of kind of stopping the climate but my issue with the liberal approach to that is that you have to take the economy into mind here right because liberals are capitalists so you can't just go well just throw money at it we got we got to fix this thing they got to think about the market so they're thinking about the pipelines and they're thinking about the oil companies and they're thinking about all these things that to me are the villains in this situation what's the detriment i think allowing those voices in stops us from preventing the world from burning essentially right the climate is warming the world will burn but we have all these debates in between to kind of to kind of agree or disagree with the science what are we what what do you mean what happens with the majority countries that can't afford to heat things as efficiently well this is this is also like a really good point as well like who pays for climate change there's a number of how much it's going to cost who's going to meet that right and so you have majority world countries going we didn't burn the planet we're just now building factories like we're just only now getting there in the interim of us kind of calling them majority and minority from first and third world we called them developed and developing you know what I mean? So so even though that was also derogatory and we really shouldn't call them that because, I mean, what does developed really mean? What I think it was getting at was the fact that they are just now kind of reaching the same 
standard of production catching the up with the technology they have like the factories and the workers and they're making stuff happen you know what i mean so they're saying we're, we're late to the party meaning this stuff that's been happening for however long is not on us why does the world have to pay for it you guys have to pay for it and the minority world is going we can't pay for that that's way too much money so again there's this huge debate going on and th- and and this one makes a little bit more sense because instead of denying science, which I don't think you should usually do, sometimes it's okay, right? Eugenics is a good example of that. You should deny that. That's not good. Usually that's bad, you know? But in, in terms of who's going to spend the money and where that's all coming from, I think that's an okay debate to have. But still, right? We're not doing a hell of a lot of it because we're, we're talking about it. You know what I mean? Which is <laughs> too bad. There's like a document from Shell, an oil company. They sell gas in 1980. They knew this was going to happen. There's a report. They knew the climate. They knew we were going to have an accelerated effect on the heating of the globe. They didn't care. They said, we're going to milk this cash cow. That, to me, is proof enough that they need to pay for it. I don't think they can because that's a lot of money. But, like, screw countries paying for it. Like, get corporations to pay for it because they're the main contributors. That and the U.S. military, but that's a different story. The U.S. military, I think, is the top contributor of fossil fuels I, I don't know what exactly the number is, but they're number one by like 300%. They're bad. They're not so, doing good. So what do you think about the U.S. military then? Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to say you don't need the military, right? Obviously, that's like a necessary thing to have if you're a nation state, you know? But I think that, yeah, trillions and tri- tri- Well, considering the U.S.'s GDP, considering what they spend money on, trillions and trillions is a bit crazy. If they were spending trillions and trillions on other things, fine. But healthcare is diminished, education is diminished, all these other things are diminished at the expense of having nukes and stuff, uh, right? So what are you protecting? You're building all this thing to protect your house when you need to build your house as well. Yeah, well, that's a, actually a really good way to put it. Yeah, exactly. You're what What are you protecting? And you're not putting money into anything else, really, so... I don't know. I don't really get it, you know, yeah. and at the expense of the climate. So, so, so what are you protecting in that way too, where you're building all these arms to, if there is a war, win it. And then the planet burns to a crisp because we reach two degrees in the next five years. Right. That can't happen either. You know what I mean? Like we should be spending, if you want to protect your citizens, don't spend money on the military, spend money on green energy. That's going to protect them right now. Immediately. We have a war on our hands actually. And it's against the sun and our ozone layer and fossil fuels, <laughs> right? Like, That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So what surprised you when you started learning about all this? What surprised me most is like a lot of these theorists that we learned about have progressive views on a lot of this stuff. You know, like John Locke, for example, was a secularist. He believed in a separation of church and state, right? Which was completely taboo. For his time when he was writing john stuart mill who's like the utilitarian he had some political theory and he thought that women should be equal in society which is not today a hot take but back then come on so that was surprising to me because i went into the class like these guys are of a time where you owned slaves and you and women right women were also property unable to vote and own their own property they were owned by their spouse or their dad they were pretty radical for their time for example john stuart mill thought that he writes with his wife uh in the subjugation of women that women should be equal because if we want a good society everybody should be able to contribute and by removing the rights of women we're not letting them contribute so why would we, why are we doing that right let them contribute to society and that's true but women should be equal because they're people. Like, I don't care about 
what they're able to contribute, especially because like that, that's kind of subjective. That changes a lot, but humanity doesn't. And so to reinstill someone's rights because they have value is a little bit problematic to me. They should just have rights because they are born. Well, you can't ignore 50% of the world. That's also true. That's also very true. Yeah. So then you got you were surprised to know that back when you thought things mm-hmm. were pretty rough, there was actually people that had these progressive yeah. ideas. More progressive than I was thinking, yeah. So then what's the best part about this class? That's a really good question. What is the best part? When I went to university, I didn't know a whole hell of a lot. I read some things and I had my own opinions, but you never know your opinions are right until you challenge them. You have to hold them up to some scrutiny before you like can be- really believe something. At least I think so. You can't just like go, yep, that's what I think. We're done. So what's been really validating for me is finding out that a lot of other people who are established writers think just like I do. The grades that I am getting kind of also validate that in that I, I don't think you can give me a good grade because my ideas are good just on the quality of my writing and my understanding of the material really because if you if you did that, you'd get a really biased kind of grading system. But the feedback that I'm getting kind of maintain this perception in me that at least my ideas are grounded in reality. Because I'm really radical, like I'm really far left, I get kind of scared that I'm being a little bit far-fetched, for lack of a better term. I'm being a little bit crazy, a little bit of a radical. But So what's been validating about that is that really the, thing, the things that I think have been thought before a, and are really influential in modern political thought, right? So kind of my ideas are war- around, sure, communism. I don't know why I struggle to call it communism, probably just because of the stigma around that in, in minority world countries, and especially North America. But really workers' rights, rights for all, right? All, this, all these things that I believe. It, it's nice to know that they have ground or, or, or space in like, rational conversation they're not just like pipe dreams you know yeah it's, it's been valuable good to know that there's other people backing you you're not just this alone voice yeah i'm not like a crazy hermit who's like oh liberate the workers everyone's like look at this old guy you know what <laughs> i mean no well everybody should be able to have a good life yeah i think so i think it's absurd to pay people to work you know pay people to come back to work right yeah, just enough to rejuvenate mm-hmm. you for the next day. Because Well, yeah, because I was thinking about this about my own job, right? I work for the city. I like the city. A lot of lifeguards are unhappy right now <laughs> with how things are being run. And I think they're right to think so. I think because of the pandemic, people kind of learned that I'm being mistreated at work a little bit. Because when you're in it, right, you don't really think about that. Because all you're, all you're really doing is going to work and getting paid and paying your bills. And so that's all you're focused on. But we all got laid off. For like eight months and so people had a lot of time to think and i know that because i did and i'm so i'm sure everybody else did too and we're coming back to work now and we're going i don't want to take it anymore right i don't want to take this kind of mistreatment that we're getting why do we do unpaid labor for lessons right lesson planning is not paid for report cards are not paid for all this stuff a lot of things we're talking about and i and i thought to myself the other day on the pool deck you, you ideally you want people to come to work happy and leave happy I think that's how you run a really successful business is you treat your workers well enough. They come ready to work, enthusiastic, enthusiastic to work, and they leave ready to do it again, right? They want to come. They work. Oh, I love being a lifeguard, right? If they're coming to work unhappy because everything is so expensive outside, you need to make the workplace nice for them so that they can at least leave in at least the same mood, not a worse mood. 
But what's happening now is they're coming to work unhappy, relatively. They're being made unhappy by the fact that they have to come to work, and they're, they're leaving worse, right? And so I think of the third and final option there is you at least have to pay them enough to kind of not just rejuvenate their ability to come back and work again, but their spirit, right? You got to pay them to kind of be enthusiastic about working again, right? If work sucks, that's okay as long as you're paid enough to make life good, right? Like I'm okay doing the lifeguarding that I'm doing. So I guess another good way to put it is that um, wages overall have been rising very slowly in contrast to how they used to rise. I don't know what minimum wage used to be when I started lifeguarding, but we were like a good double over it. Like we made good money for the time, but now we've gone up like not that much, right? We make pretty much the same as when we started. The raises have been kind of slow, but minimum wage has creeped up, which it isn't usually, but if minimum wage is any indication of the, the standard of living, what you need to meet that, if our wage is becoming closer to that then you're not really getting the same life you were getting as a lifeguard right realistically i think lifeguards should be getting more money but everybody should be getting more money but just for the case of lifeguards if we are um under our current assumptions in society worth more than minimum wage you gotta widen that like it's gotta stay standard right yeah the gap has just been slowly narrowing Mm -hmm. because the minimum wage is the lowest legal amount somebody can pay you that's what i mean yeah so that because then it's based on the cost of living, what it costs to upkeep just coming back to work, living, yeah. sleep, and food, yeah. and clothes. The bare minimum. The bare minimum. And then now that is narrowing quite a bit. Right. So so this is exactly what I'm saying. If you are intentioned on keeping us closer to minimum wage, we are going to become closer to that level of work, closer to that level of enthusiasm when we come to work. Ideally, you want everybody to care about the job that they're doing. So you want to make sure that they have benefits and pay to do that, right? But I think you really want a lifeguard to care about what they do. Because when a lifeguard's apathetic, some bad stuff can happen. You know what I mean? And we're starting to see that. We're starting to see lifeguards become more apathetic toward their job. Which means people's lives are more in danger, right? Pullouts are getting missed. Guards are getting missed. What are they called? Pullouts, like when somebody's drowning and you have to jump in and pull them out of the water, people are missing them because they're distracted and bored and apathetic on the pool deck, right? Which I'm not, that's not a criticism of lifeguards. I'm not blaming my coworkers, right? But when I see that happening on mass and I see like other, because obviously lifeguarding is one part of the job, but there's a bunch of other steps to it, right? There's off-rotation duties, uh, there's laundry to do. Wait, there's, there's what? What was the first one? The, there's what? Off-rotation duties. Oh, off-rotation. So you're on the deck for 15 yeah. Or anywhere between 15 and 4 hours. Ideally 15 minutes, though. And then you're off deck for 15. And so in that 15, you're supposed to do laundry, do your lesson work, clean. Do, like there's, there's stuff to do. People aren't doing it anymore because they're apathetic. They don't care. They're not paid enough to care. I think what I'm hearing from the city is you guys don't care. That's on you. We're cramping down on you. Iron fist action to make you care. Right? We're going to start writing people up where like they're taking a really punitive kind of behaviorist approach where they want to where they want to make sure that people know you got to care about this shit or there's going to be hell to pay right but i think the workers are going then pay up you know what i mean yeah they're hitting you at the symptom not yeah, the cause exactly exactly yeah so so i so well personally something that really bothers me is we talk about scheduling at the pools and we go, why are lifeguards scheduled when they're scheduled? And so, for example, what I just said about rotations, ideally 15 minutes on, 15 minutes off, 
based on the level of difficulty for the swim you're guarding, that can range from a maximum time of like an hour and a half to two hours to four hours. I think is the like 90 minutes to 240. We're getting closer and closer to those maximum times on deck because we're not scheduling lifeguards, right? For a couple of reasons, there's a little bit less money going around because of the pandemic. It's harder to kind of schedule people, right? When we ask management, why are we not rotating for so long? So the main issue is not being on the pool deck for an extended period of time. It's really that if anything happens and we're no rotating, it's a major. So a nosebleed, you got to like clean up somebody's nosebleed. You got to clear the whole pool. It had to take half an hour to fix this thing. Let everybody back in. Now it's a huge uproar. Now customers are upset. Now guards are stressed out. They got to keep people out. They got to, right? Because legally, because there's, there's like a legal term in lifeguard called negligence, which is that if you are kind of out of the, out of bounds in terms of what the life-saving society has deemed safe for a swim, now you are culpable if anything happens. So the lifeguard is culpable. Exactly. So, so let's say there's a let's say there's a nosebleed. You're not rotating. You don't call that major. You leave a guard off the pool deck dealing with a nosebleed, or they're distracted dealing with a nosebleed, while everybody else is still guarding. And somebody has a major and dies, right? Like someone drowns. All the guards there are culpable because they didn't follow the guidelines from the Life Saving Society. So it's really important for us to stay strict to that. And and when it's ridiculous, like oh, if I was a swimmer and I paid to be there. And I was kicked out of the water because some kids got a nosebleed for five minutes and we got to wait 30 minutes to take care of it all. I'd be pissed. I'd want to get right back in the water. And now the lifeguards are fighting with customers saying, no, don't get back in the water, blah, 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 blah. There's like this back and forth happening, right? It becomes a disaster. So ideally, you want an off-rotation guard, at least one more than that for a more difficult swim. Oh, but there's currently not an off-rotation guard. More often than not, there is. Yeah. But we're seeing more of those no-rotating shifts. We're seeing more and more people on the pool deck for longer with less people in the guard room to take care of first aids and whatever. When we ask them why that is, they tell us budget. They tell us there's just no money to pay people, which is, to an extent, true. But we're asking a different question, the lifeguards. For example, Tuesdays and Thursdays, we run lessons. And so the leisure side at Shaw closes for three and a half hours. I work for the first, like, half of that, right? So for the last little bit of my shift, which is from about 11.30 till 1.00, one side is closed. From like 11.30 to noon, uh, it's me and one other person, which is perfect. Because I go on for 15, then I'm off for 15, it hits noon, I'm an hour away from the end of my shift, and we're still only one side. But then, one guard comes in at noon, so they rotate on, two in the guard room. One guard comes in at 12.15, they're on, three in the guard room. One guard comes in at 12.30, one on, four in the guard room, and then on. So I don't really work the last hour and 15 minutes of my shift, which means I'm getting like $30.00. For nothing, almost. I do my off-rotation duties, but I'm not actually guarding the pool deck. So what we're actually asking management is why is that happening when we're no-rotating during a public swim where there's nine people on the pool deck and one in the guard room, right? Like, what, like what's, the, what's the disparity there? I don't really... Yeah, it's not a great management of resources. It's, we, it's a weird allocation of resources, exactly, right? And so why am I talking about that? Because you need to make... If you're not going to pay people more, you have to make work pleasant if you want people to care about it. You want them to come to work. You want them to do the work you want them to do. You have to make it pleasant. But you're not doing either. We're not getting more money to work piss-poor hours where we're no rotating forever and it's really stressful. And we're not getting guard coverage to 
Well, you're um, not getting guard coverage at the correct time. At the correct time, exactly. Because guards you know, are scheduled weirdly. What's causing that schedule conflict? That's a great question. I want to get to the bottom of that, but whenever we ask them, they say it's a budget reason. And we're like, that's not what we're asking you. We're asking you why guards are where they are. So I think we're experiencing some inconsistent results, and people often blame management. They go, you guys are not doing your jobs. We hate you. I don't think that's true. I don't think anyone has malicious intent. My only guess is that people fill out availability for times in which the pool is less busy. And so we get a lot of available guards right in that middle section around noon where there's nothing happening. And then people don't really want to work Monday evening, for example, where there is like 120 to 200 people in the water for a public swim, but nobody with available hours to work that. But to me, that's still not a lifeguard's problem. That's still not people not wanting to work at those hours because they're lazy. It's because the work is unpleasant. You got to incentivize people somehow. Yeah, right. To, kind of do that. to actually start caring about the yeah. work they're doing. Maybe more respect for management. We were actually, we have, so four times a year at the turn of every season, we have an in-service training session. Because Harry Bailey is close. Usually they're in water. They're about lifeguarding practice. They're about um, how to save lives. But because Bailey's closed, we didn't do an in-water one this season for the spring. We did one at Cosmo on land. It was a PD day, really. They called it a PD day instead of an in-service because it wasn't really about lifeguarding. It was about exactly what I'm talking about right now, kind of this back and forth we're having with management. And one of the questions a guard asked anonymously was, why does management treat us like children? And I thought that was very interesting because for, for, I get respect a lot of the time because I have a lot of hours of seniority. And I haven't really heard anybody express this because, again, I don't really talk to a lot of people. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm very isolated in my job where, like, I see the same amount of people every day usually. And, and usually they have similar amounts of seniority. So it's a very, like, closed off group of people that I associate with. So I can't speak to this. But I thought the question was still interesting. Like, why, why do people feel like they're being treated like children? And I got to think lifeguards are obviously apathetic and they're getting kind of um, reprimanded by management in ways that may be construed as disrespectful because it's much easier to go hey get to work than it is to like have a conversation with somebody especially when there's 200 people in the water and you got to make things happen snip snappity so if change room checks aren't getting done you're not going to go hey let's talk about the importance of change room checks you're going to yell at that guy to get in the change rooms and check him out so that's i think got to change culturally right yeah. like you can't disrespect your workers and expect them to come back enthusiastic yeah but you, know? you also need the time to be able to yeah. Take it from the beginning to the end to complete resolution. Yeah, exactly. However, they don't because there's two there's, people in the water. And there's no time. Yeah. And then we don't book that in the future. To me, that's what this PD day was supposed to be about. It was supposed to kind of be about... Um, Let's sort out all the problems. Right. And I thought it was going to be an authentic conversation, lifeguard to management. Yeah. It wasn't that. They got us to fill out questions a couple months prior, and then they came up with the most textbook corporate answers they could and then just kind of recited to them kind of under the illusion that it was an authentic conversation i remember the guy running by and be like i think you wanted to speak to this one right and that was funny to me after i found out they were pre-generated not pre-generated but pre-written because it, that's not authentic at all right that's a script they have written down for how this is supposed to go and the minute that you write a script for performance management i think you're you're hooped you're doomed right yeah, you've kind of lost the mark on you've kind that. of lost the mark that's that's disrespectful because I'm yeah. coming here to have a conversation with you guys, and you guys have pre or like pre organized. You have these canned responses, exactly, and that, you're actually not ready to have a discussion. Yeah, and so if one of us gets out of the box, now we have an issue, and we go, "We'll handle that later." When that's the most important part, right? So, for example, we have four pools. Well, right now we have three: we have Lakewood, Lawson, and Shaw. 
Shaw Center is lucky because we staff it very generously. Usually, Shaw is the best staffed, especially in the mornings. In the mornings, we have three guards, which is unheard of to have a rotating guard for that early morning session, which means we can do change room checks, which means that I'm on the deck, position one for 15, position two for 15, off deck for 15, which means the first five of that, I can be walking through the change rooms, making sure nobody's dead. And so ideally, you have at least one female guard, one male guard to check them, check them both out, because I can't go in the female. Unfortunately, two things are happening. A, Shaw Center is getting a lot of dude guards I don't know, in the morning, which is new. I don't know why that's happening specifically now, but we haven't been going through the female change room a lot, which is problematic because anything can happen in there, and we won't know about it. But at Lakewood and Lawson, there's only one guard there for about two and a half hours, which means that for two and a half hours, the pool is open. People are circulating through. Nobody's walking through those change rooms. Nobody with first aid certification is walking through those change rooms. And that might not seem like a problem because typically it isn't. A lot of people just kind of do their own thing and they're fine. But when I was guarding at Bailey, I was at position one. You're familiar by the guard chair. This guy does a flip turn. And I'm, as I'm sure you also know, the bulkhead has those holes in it, right? Where you can grab onto it. His foot goes through the hole and collides with the bottom of it and makes this loud snapping sound, right? This huge, like, <clears throat> kind of sound. So I run up and I'm like, are you good? Like, you, did you break your foot? Can you move it around? He was like, yeah, I'm fine. He moves it around, right? He's fine. He, slur- he sort of slowly makes his way down to the other side, hops out and goes to the change room. I'm like, okay, he he's probably embarrassed. I would be. I would want to get out. So he leaves. And then 45 minutes go by. I'm on the other side now because of how we're doing rotations. And this patron comes running out. He's like, hey, this guy's bleeding all over your change room. <laughs> you, can, you should probably go check that out. So he runs in there. He brings the foot guy out. And we're like, oh, your foot is not okay. Not broken. Thank God. But bleeding. Cut wide open. If that patron hadn't walked through that change room, that guy could have passed out. You know what I mean? And we wouldn't have known because we wouldn't have been. He was in the bathroom. He was in the stall. This guy was washing his hands. He, was, he heard somebody in the chair. He was like, buddy, are you okay? And then he came up to tell us. If that didn't happen, game over, right? I'm not saying he would have died, but he would have at least passed out. And that would have been a huge problem. So my question is, why do we let that happen? Why do we book the morning shifts for no change room checks? We don't get a rotating guard. We do it shot, which is great, and we always do them because you have to because shit like that happens. But at Lakewood and Lasley, they don't have them. So I asked that question. Somebody asked, why the rules seem, anonymously they wrote in, why the rules seem inconsistently kind of doled out at all sites. They're not, it's not really the same, even though it should be. And and the guy running the session was kind of like, I don't really know what you mean by inconsistent rules. So does anybody have an example? And I was like, boy, do I have an example. So I gave them two examples. I gave them an easy one to answer to kind of break the ice. And then this change room check example. I was like, why at Lakewood Lawson and Bailey can we have the radio on and we can't have it on at Shaw? And they were like, oh, well, X, Y, Z reason. You should be able to turn it on at Shaw. It's weird that you're not. If somebody at Shaw tells you you can't do that, come talk to me. We'll sort it out because realistically, there's no issue there. And so I was like, okay, and here's my second example. I gave the change room check example, and they were like, we'll move on. They didn't answer it. And I was like, okay. You still don't know the reason that there are no change room checks. From like six to nine at most pools, yeah. All of them except Shaw. I don't really get that. Yeah, because well, especially because they're so important. They really I think are. I, from they a, really are. Yeah, I think from a lifeguarding perspective, 
anybody would argue, yeah, we got to go through those. We got to make sure people aren't dying in our change rooms where we can't see, right? Those are still our patrons. We got to make sure they're okay. But even from a management perspective, when they come, we have a little sign-off sheet to say, at this time, I did the change room check through here and here. This is what I saw. It was all good. Every now and again, our boss will walk through the guard room and take a look at it and go, hey, you guys are slacking on the change room checks. Let's pick that up right? And if we continue to slack, it's a big issue. We get pulled aside, we get talked to, not in a rough way. This is actually very, very nice. They coach us on the importance of change room checks, yada, yada, yada. Because to some people who haven't been through situations like I have, where someone's bleeding out in our change room, they don't really get it, right? A lot of people just kind of lackadaisically roam through the change room. They don't really look at stuff. You can kind of tell when they're doing one. They're just kind of like a robot walking through. You gotta like clear, clear, you're like check your angles and stuff. You know what I mean? Make sure it's all okay. Luckily, we get like the the yeah, we get reprimanded, but there's a coaching aspect where it's like, you know how important these are? That's still dangerous in there. Anything can happen. Heart attacks, right? Especially in the morning when it's a lot of older patrons, right? Anything can happen in there. Yeah. So at all times there should be oh yeah change room checks. Well and and, and what I'm telling you, management agrees with that. They they see we're not doing them, they go, What the hell? Go do them. And if we still don't do them, they say, guys. These are really important that you do these. Just not from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Exactly. at two pools. For some reason, at at three, one of them's closed, but at three out of the four pools, that's not the case. Oh. And there's no answer on that for some reason. I, I've i kind of given up because it's been like an ongoing thing. I do my change room checks now. I care about the pool deck because I care about my regulars. I like you guys. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm watching you. I have good relationships with you. That's what brings me into the job. So usually change room checks are essential and mm-hmm. also... When something happens on the pool deck or in the change room, you have to call a major. And a major is... If you're no rotating, long-ass whistle, everybody out of the water, usually 911 gets called. It's a big deal, right? You wouldn't call 911 for a nosebleed, but typically like, like majors are huge. Everybody gets involved. Everyone's kind of nervous and scared. People quit their jobs from dealing with majors because of what it does to your brain, right? For example... When you do, you know CPR? Yeah. When you do CPR, the goal is to break someone's ribs so that you can stimulate the heart, right? When you have to do that on a kid, you never come back. You never bounce back from that. That is the hardest thing you can ever do as a lifeguard, I think. And so, when you hear that major whistle, that's where your mind goes. Immediately, you're in shock. Immediately, you're like, "Oh my god!" So to do that for nothing, oh my god, it sucks. Oh my god, it sucks. There's just no point in putting anybody through that. Oh, because you hear the whistle, you don't know what's going on. You don't yet. know what's going on. You show up and okay, nosebleed. Now you can come down. Now you're like, holy fuck, we're okay. Yeah. Right. So what's the protocol when you need to pull somebody out of the pool? Because they're drowning or something. You get them out. Well, it depends on what's happening, really. You know, typically, if you're a good guard and everybody usually catches it at this point, um, you jump in and you tow them to the side. There's a specific technique that we're supposed to use called the Pia Carry. But you don't have to blow a whistle when you do this? You do. You blow a minor whistle. So the first first order of business, you blow a whistle. Mm -hmm. And what does that signal? It's a short tweet. And it signals that somebody's in distress. I need to leave my position quickly, but we don't need to clear the pool. It's a minor thing. Oh, and then that signals to all the guards. Mm -hmm. So pretty much, pretty much the golden rule is one position, one guard at every position required if at any time that guard has to leave that position uh, and there isn't another one to fill that position, that's a major. If a guard can fill that position, that's a minor, right? So if, if, for example, I'm guarding at position one right by the guard room at Shaw, somebody's about to drown in, in the kid pool, I have to hop in. 
if somebody from the guard room hears my whistle and can just come guard the rest of the pool, I can get that kid out, no problem, no harm, no foul. If there's nobody in the guard room, now it's a major. So that's oh. that's kind of the, the so designation. So what's the major there. whistle? It's a, just a long tweet. Oh, right? so the first so one's like a... a that's just like a, but if you like really give her, really blow into it, it's loud. It's, it's, it's like something extremely wrong, intrusive. That's, that's a major whistle. Okay. Yeah. And so you've blown the major, you've blown the minor or the major, depending mm-hmm. on the situation. The person's mm-hmm. drowning. Now what? Well, you just deal with it. So you hop into the pool, you yep. swim to them yep. and you carry them with the Pia. Yeah. Pia. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the technique you're taught and what you're supposed to use. I don't think it's negligent not to, because for the most part, you're dealing with people who are a third of your body size. Also, they're in water they can't touch in, but you can touch in it. So you don't really have to pee to carry a toddler. But yeah, if somebody from a deep water aqua motion class is DNSing, you would definitely go for that. Yeah, because it's, it's kind of the best way to, like, more, most efficient way to carry somebody through the water. Yeah. Oh, and this is that one where they're on your knee. On your hip. On yeah, your you create like a little chair with your hip. You hug them close. And the goal is two things. A, it's fast because you're a little bit streamlined. You're on your side. You have the power from your bottom leg and your and your, your non-carry arm. But also, the minute someone's shoulders come out of the water, they relax. So the reason a pullout is tough is because someone's thrashing. They're drowning, right? So they're kicking all of the water all over the place. And that's dangerous for them because they're tiring themselves out. They're going to drown faster. But it's dangerous for you because if they hit you, Right? If they're big and strong, now you're now you're a problem too, right? So the Pia carry you get under them, hit them at the hips, put them on your hip like a chair, and then carry them over. Because A, they're not gonna swing on you if you're under them, and B, the minute their shoulders come out, the thrashing stops. Oh, interesting. You can carry them there really easily. Yeah. So the goal is to get the shoulders out of the water so they stop thrashing, yeah. get them over. Yeah. And that's the protocol for Yeah. Okay. If they're breathing, yeah. If they're not breathing, there's some other things you can do. Uh, if they're on the bottom, for example, um, there's a name for it. I don't really remember it, but essentially you want to protect the airway by tucking kind of the head down. Oh, so really? So that no more water can get in while you're bringing them up. So oh, you so you close that airway by chin to chest? Chin to chest. And then you swim them up, and then you, you can tow them really. Oh, no so you're holding their mouth and nose closed and putting their chin to their chest. You know, that's a good point. I don't actually ever, pers- maybe you're supposed to. I don't, when I'm practicing, do it. All I know is chin to chest because that kind of closes everything off. Yeah, and then bring them back up. Back up and then tow them to the nearest edge, which you can do anyway because they're not thrashing. They're not panicking. They're unconscious. So you can kind of get them there the quickest way possible which is usually just like a standard toe where you're holding kind of their shoulders or their head and egg beatering right oh, into the okay. wall. okay, backwards though. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Out they come, and then you deal with I mean, CPR usually. And that's a major immediately then. Immediately, yeah, yeah. immediately. So, so the, the guard ratio thing is one way to kind of designate minor or major, but if somebody's unconscious in the water... That's major, major. no matter what, oh, yeah. no matter how many guards are on. Because, well, I guess it does kind of sort of relate back to the other thing, because what's going to happen is one person can get that person out, but now it takes five people to take care of the CPR. So now there's no more guards for the pool deck. Oh, because you got to rotate and keep that CPR going until more help arrives. Well, and you got to find who knows this person. you got to call 911. you got to get the AED from the front office. Like, there's jobs for people to do, so there's no guarding that can happen. I don't think anybody, anybody would want to stay at the pool if somebody was being CPR'd. You know what I mean? That would be pretty traumatic to hear someone's ribs crack <laughs> yeah. while you're just doing front, front crawl. <laughs> um, yeah, there's no complaints about getting back no. in the pool right now. No, people want to leave. Yeah, people totally. want to get the hell out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. So then what's the best part about your lifeguarding? The people. 
you guys, the regulars. Really? All day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love, uh, there's people I don't have close relationships with, but I love saying good morning to people because they smile at me. That brightens up my day, and I know it brightens up theirs. And then there's you guys. There's you, and there's a guy named Bernie, and there's, there's, <laughs> there's so many other people who I just, I love talking to, and I love seeing every day. That, to me, is the best part every single day. Yeah, that community, yeah. the people seeing you every day. Perfect word for it, the community. That's exactly yeah. what it is. I have been incredibly lucky. And what I mean by that is that I, so when you apply for a position, they don't look at anything else but your seniority score, which is directly related to hours worked. So for me to get the position that I got as early on as I did was so incredibly lucky. I don't think I was even on the third page of seniority when I got my position. I took it from somebody who had like 10 years on staff. And it was because, given my availability, I worked that morning shift with them all the time. So I had experience there, which didn't really factor into anything because it's just seniority. But that person told me, when I leave this job, I won't tell anybody that I'm leaving. You apply for it and you'll get it. And so I got it in my second year of guarding. And so I've just been the morning guard. Like I I guarded normal guarding, normal lifeguard guarding for two years. The other four have just been opening. So the patrons are kind. They're respectable. They're at a time of day where they're they're not rude because they haven't been pissed off by something throughout the day. They're starting their day with a guard who's welcoming them to an activity they want to do. Everyone's happy. Management isn't there yet, so I'm alone, which is which is bad for change room checks, but good because no one's breathing down my neck. I can kind of just do my job and get on with it, which is awesome. I get a little bit of extra pay for that too, actually, because I have additional responsibilities because in the absence of a rec worker, I'm the rec worker, so I get a little bit more money. So, I, dude, I can't complain. Yeah. Truthfully, I have the best job in the world. Well, you can't complain as, for yourself. That's what I'm saying. I'm not representative. But everybody else, they don't get lucky like me. They don't have regulars like me. The regulars during public swim yell and scream at you. They get into fights with each other that you have to break up. So they get there's patrons that get in fights with guards? Verbal altercations with guards, yeah. A lot, yeah. Really? Bad. A guard... Well, if I don't use names, I'm sure Don't use fine. name. Don't use a name. A guard had a knife pulled on them during a change room check. That's kind of crazy, right? That'll never happen, hopefully, in a morning shift. But that's what I mean. Like, I would not want to come back to that if I worked in the evenings. But I don't come back to that. I come back to smiles and happy people. <laughs> so, change room check in the evening. Somebody got a knife pulled on them. Yeah. They were, they, were, they were doing some disrespectful behavior in the hot tubs. Guard was like, guys, out. No more. You got to leave, right? They did. But they were messing around in the change rooms. We didn't know that until this guard, same guard, did a change room check. And then he was like, guys, uh-uh, you can't be in the facility. I've kicked you out. Go. And he was like, what are you going to do about it? Or something to that effect, right? Didn't That's tough because he's alone in that change room. And the only person doing that check is him. Mm-hmm. Which actually that became like a little minor rule. Because we have the right to refuse. We're unionized. And so we can do shit. We don't have to do stuff that we feel unsafe doing. So... On the day, if you feel unsafe, I'm not doing a change room check. And management has to abide by that because you have the right to refuse. Um, But what we did end up doing, luckily, for public swims is that change room checks can only be done if there's another guard to do them with you. So your right to refuse is now enacted if there's nobody to do them with you. If you feel safe enough to do them alone, by all means. But if there's no guard, if you feel unsafe, you got to have a partner. Yeah. Which is way better. Yeah. It should be during those hectic times. Where yeah. there aren't always the regulars that Especially you, that you when, know. Especially when, like, the rabble-rousers come in. And, like, not it's not always a knife, but people get angry, right? They, and, and this is what I mean. They, they've had a long day, and the diving boards are closed. And they've been looking forward to the diving boards all day. I'm not on their side. I think if the diving boards are closed, 
come back tomorrow. They might be open tomorrow. But people get really mad about that. <laughs> and so, yeah, people get yelled at. Uh, I remember a long, like about a couple months ago, there was one really hectic Sunday where like a billion people showed up. And a fight broke out in the in on the leisure side. So they put the instigator in a room. They had to watch him because he wanted to finish the fight. So they were like, no, just sit down, calm down, stay here. Um, and so because a couple guards had to watch this guy who was like amped up and wanted to beat somebody up, they had to close diving boards. And now people are yelling at the guards on the comp side because the diving boards are closed. They're like, I paid to be here, all this stuff. Now those guards are having a panic attack because I get like, I, I don't. I'm not representative, so I'm not going to say this is ridiculous to react this way, to have a panic attack to that. But what did those patrons say? You know what I mean? Like, how mean did they get? Probably very, because I, I know almost everybody on staff. I know that they wouldn't just overreact like that, right? Like, for them to have it. So, two of them had, like, a little oh. episode over it because it got really, like, So, two hectic. of the guards. Yeah. So we, so, we had to, like, just completely, like, just reset everything real quick on one Sunday. So, I don't ever deal with that, right? Yeah. And so, I love my job, but I get why people don't. <laughs> you know, yeah. I get why people... um. Well, you can see that other side. Yeah. It's such a large contrast. Yeah. Yeah. Majorly. Because, I, yeah, I hear the stories from people, you know? Yeah. So yeah. is there anything I haven't asked you? No. All you right. wanted to talk about school and lifeguarding. All right, and man. We talked about them both. Should we call it? I'm down. Cool.